0: This is Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared, hosted by myself, David Savage, where we talk to leaders from across the technology industry. Welcome to a very different episode of the show. No guests, no quiche, no silly backwards and forwards between the two of us. This week, instead, we bring you an audio book. Tomorrow, if you head over to the Nash Squared website, you will find our Digital Leadership Report microsite. The DLR is a survey that we as a company have been running for over two decades now and is the world's largest digital leadership survey. It's lots of data, it's market-leading, it's fascinating, but it doesn't really give you much sense of narrative. So... To do something a bit different with it this year we decided to to give some of that data to five experts in the market and ask them to talk to us about five key challenges the result of that is five articles which are opinion driven and subjective but full of insights and full of takeaways that i hope will challenge you as people within the industry to think about some of those key themes a little bit differently it covers talent transformation security sustainability and inclusion so i hope you enjoy this feel free to skip to the ones that feel most relevant but do listen to them all because if you do it gives you a big picture of what's going on out there globally and hopefully that is is a conversation that that is worth having i certainly think it is anyway we'll be back with a normal format next week but i hope that you enjoy this slightly different offering that we have to give you
1: the state of digital Bev White, CEO, Nash Squared. For the past 23 years, we've been running the Nash Squared Digital Leadership Report through which we gather and analyze huge amounts of data from global digital leaders and explore key themes and trends in the evolving world of tech. This year, in the wake of the tumultuous COVID-19 pandemic during which technology played such a fundamentally important enabling and facilitating role, we wanted to do something extra to gauge where we are and the path that lies ahead. The real stories in tech are more than just the numbers after all. So we invited five leaders from the tech world to give us their take on what the data is showing across five key themes. These subject areas lie right at the heart of issues the tech industry is tackling. Digital transformation, the talent challenge, cybersecurity, diversity and inclusion, and sustainability. I am delighted to present five fascinating viewpoints on these areas, all of which pick up on some of the key statistics in the 2021 Digital Leadership Report. We also asked each contributor to answer a common question. What is the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge facing the tech sector? Their answers to this are equally fascinating. A theme on the opportunity side is that if we get it right, Tech really can change the world for the better. But on the challenge side of the equation, new models may be needed if trust and faith in technology is to be maintained. My sincere thanks to all our contributors for their participation, time and truly thought-provoking insights. I hope you will enjoy reading these viewpoints as much as I did.
0: What's in this report? Transformation will fail If the CIO lets ego get in the way. Chris Ashworth, Chief Information Officer, Every. Having a vision and keeping it personal will help you in the war for talent. Elizabeth Tweedale, Chief Executive Officer, Cipher Coders. The sustainability future is coming at us faster than we know. Tom Mills, Founder and Managing Director, Two Oceans Strategy. We have set the bar too low in favor of usability over cybersecurity Robert Bigman president of 2B Secure Inc formerly the chief information security officer at the CIA We need to change the narrative to drive up inclusivity in tech Devi Vanaviar chief executive officer Flow Pilots Article 1 Transformation will fail if the CIO lets ego get in the way. Chris Ashworth, Chief Information Officer,
1: Every. Key insights. 1. For a successful transformation, the CIO must have the ear of the board and show ambition that is backed up by a clear roadmap and regular wins. 2. With such a complex remit, the CIO must also give the business ability to manage some of the aspects of IT itself And not just try to exert excessive control, it cannot become a battle of egos. Number three. The aim is to get right the balance between collaboration and control. Not impeding creativity and innovation, but retaining clear sight of activity and ensuring that risk and security standards are never compromised.
0: When I joined Hermes, now Every, nearly six years ago as Chief Information Officer, I was brought in with a clear brief to lead the business on an IT transformation that would modernise systems and enable infrastructure to keep pace with demand. The business back then ran very much on legacy systems and had big physical data centres that sometimes fell over during peak periods. Since then, we've migrated to the cloud and have consumption-based infrastructure that is aligned with our business model. The UK business now handles around 700 million deliveries a year, and at peak times, our systems process 5,000 transactions a second. Our business very much fits the picture in the Nash Squared Digital Leadership Report, where half of organisations were planning major transformation over the next three years. We're on a journey, and one that's continuing. The job of IT is never done. With so many stakeholders in the business looking to IT to support their needs, I've had to ask myself the question that every CIO comes to eventually. What relationships and dynamics do I need to create to make this transformation work? Show your ambition to the board. For me, it's crucial to establish a strong relationship with the board from the outset. In fact, I believe that the CIO should be on the board themselves. I am, and I don't think I'd take a CIO position that wasn't. Obviously, though, this is going to vary from business to business. When I started at Every, my first task was to persuade the board that we needed to significantly increase investment in IT. In truth, this wasn't difficult because it was clear to everyone that our systems were failing the business. Then, it becomes about giving a clear vision of where you're trying to get to and breaking that down into clear phases of the journey. Once you've got that buy-in, It's about delivering quick and regular wins in the first instance to build momentum and confidence. You need to be open and honest whilst also showing ambition. You need a certain toughness too. I had to show a bit of belligerence and persistence when we were migrating our data from servers in Germany to the cloud. Be somewhat aggressive in your goals. If you only deliver 80 or 90% of them a year, that will still be significant. I have found that the board and clients have welcomed the ambitious plans I've put forward and have celebrated their delivery. Collaboration with the business, not an ego game. CIOs and tech leaders have to work with many different parties, other functions in the business, clients, customers, suppliers. This is one of the hardest areas to get right. How much should the CIO be looking to control everything that happens And how much is it okay to let the business run with things? For me, it's about overcoming ego to find the right solutions for the organisation. This is an area where, in fact, I may not be typical because my CIO role at Every has expanded greatly in the last few years to the point where I now lead not only IT, but marketing, products and customer experience. I led the multi-million pound rebrand from Hermes to Every that has just launched. I have chief technology, marketing and product officers and head of customer experience who all report to me. In other businesses, this will be more siloed. Nevertheless, I think that I have learned a number of key lessons that will apply to other CIOs too. Firstly, it's absolutely necessary to simply be in regular contact with your fellow directors. I talk to other directors in the business every day, whether it's about business as usual issues or strategic matters, keeping communication channels open and understanding the wider picture, and keeping up rapport, it's vital. Whether I'm having a physical day in the office or a virtual day working from home, I make sure it's the same in that respect. The second key point applies particularly if the business you work for is experiencing growth. It's great when this happens, but the workload and complexity inevitably increases too. So you have to let go of your own ego and let others take some of your remit if that's going to be in the best interests of the business. Don't try and hold on to everything yourself. Don't be too political and calculated. Be an honest dealer and keep in line with the values of your business. Bring good people in and work collaboratively with them. Don't get stuck in your ways either. If there are opportunities to do things differently and better, embrace them. Dealing with shadow IT Another big area to deal with is shadow IT. It's something that confronts every CIO these days. The Nash Squared report found that around a fifth of IT spend is now outside the tech function. It used to be an issue that really worried me, but I began to realise that it's a similar principle to letting go of parts of your remit. You can't control everything, and it's not the CIO's role to control all things IT. The question to ask yourself is, am I going to add value by owning this? Or should I let the business get on with it, build in regular reviews and feedback loops? It's the latter that works better in my experience. The non-negotiable element, however, is around risk and cybersecurity. All shadow IT must comply and be aligned to the organization's broader risk and security approach. For me, therefore, one of the keys to successful transformation, outside all the technical considerations and choices of course, is to get the balance right between control and collaboration. As CIO, you have to be in control at the strategic, big picture level. But you'll get the best results by collaborating with the business, working alongside fellow directors and trusting others to deliver where you believe they're best placed to do so. Make sure you build in governance processes that you can regularly review what's going on and don't become disconnected, but make sure at the same time that it doesn't become too bureaucratic and make it too hard to affect change. Biggest challenge, biggest opportunity. I'm going to start with the opportunity. To me, tech is an amazing sector to be in there isn't a better place to be. The scope of the change you can bring about, the value you can bring to the organisation and its clients, it's truly exciting and incredibly rewarding. The challenge, however, arises out of this opportunity. Because once you start building something, people naturally begin to want more. As you deliver all the benefits of an IT transformation, it unleashes a tidal wave of demand. So the challenge for the tech sector is simple, to keep up with expectation and to keep delivering against it. It's what we have to do and what we'll keep on committing ourselves to achieving. Article 2. Having a vision and keeping it personal will help you in the war for talent. Elizabeth Tweedale, Chief Executive Officer, Cypher Coders.
1: Key Insights 1. Tech recruitment is a challenge for all organisations, but startups and small businesses with compelling purpose and a more personal environment can have a real edge. 2. Flexibility is also key. Balancing remote and in person working is crucial to the dynamic. 3. But businesses also need to think more widely. Consider what skills people have in other roles and actually make them tech-proficient. There's more tech ability and potential out there than we realise.
0: Without a doubt, the tech recruitment market is highly competitive as employers compete for talent. It's a theme that comes through clearly in the Nash Square Digital Leadership Report. It seems that there's almost a continual battle going on. Post-Covid, competition is probably higher than ever. This isn't just in tech, It feels that there's a lot of movement in people generally as things open up again. My experience in hiring people comes from two main sources. I'm founder and chief executive officer of Cypher Coders and Coco Coders, running in-person and online coding camps for kids aged 6 to 12 years. We also have around 65 teachers, split mainly between the UK and US, for our online courses and around another 35 for our in-person camps in London. The teachers are contractors, while we have a core team of 12 permanent staff who run the business. My other source of experience is via GoSpace, an artificial intelligence development company that I helped found, and I am still on the board. The main recruitment needs here are for developers. I'd say that attracting and keeping people is a challenge for all businesses to a greater or lesser extent in today's market. But I also believe that smaller businesses and startups have had significant advantages over bigger, less nimble corporates. A sense of mission with a personal touch. Firstly, startups with a clear vision or mission are a natural draw for a lot of tech talent and especially the new generation. If you can articulate what it is you're trying to achieve, what difference you're trying to make, In a compelling way, this is something that today's talent will buy into. COVID has made many people reassess their lives and careers. It gave them time to stand back and think about what they really want and what they value. Having the opportunity to be in on something from its formative stages, to take part in building that story and working towards that vision, that's a compelling proposition that most large corporates can't really offer. Another important factor is the personal element. Smaller teams are usually more centred around the individual. They feel more human and supportive. The bigger the organisation, the more rigid and pervasive the bureaucracy is likely to become. It's something I really work on at Cypher. Making sure that we have that human touch and that everyone feels a genuine part of the team. We even run a personality test during our onboarding phase that identifies 16 different personality types. We use the results to work out who is likely to click best with who. Connected with this personal sense is another big consideration. Flexibility. Post-COVID, most people want and expect some flexibility in when and how they work, and employers are responding. There's no reason why many big employers can't embrace this, of course, but I think that smaller enterprises are usually able to be more agile in their approaches and let things find their natural level. At Cypher, our core team now works entirely remotely. That said, we meet up for team-building events and are looking at taking some space when we can come regularly together. There's so much value at being around other people, especially for younger team members looking to learn. Getting the balance right in the hybrid model will be crucial to many businesses and key to talent retention. Join a startup? Why not? In these unpredictable times, you might think that big tech employers have an advantage in that they can offer more job security and stability. But in fact, I think COVID has created another shift here. The pandemic showed people that nothing is safe or stationary. Anything can change, even notions of corporate security. This means that more people are willing to take risks rather than just play things safe. This is especially true among the young generation who have only been in the workforce for a few years. The result is that startups and smaller enterprises have become a why not in career terms. If people have a worst-case scenario backup plan, why shouldn't they pitch in with a bold startup with a big dream? I think we may see some polarization here as time moves on between those drawn to startups and accelerators and those for whom the more traditional benefits of a stable corporate environment hold more sway. Redefining and broadening tech. There's another key aspect to the talent challenge businesses are facing to think more broadly about what a tech role is and who may be able to fulfil it. The fact is that more people than we probably realise are proficient in tech and use it every day in their role, and this could help bridge the gaps. For example, many marketing professionals are highly skilled in the collation and analysis of data. They may even write bits of code themselves to help do this. Many such professionals have the potential to work in the tech sphere if they are inclined to do so. It was interesting to see that half of respondents in the digital leadership report expect cross-training into tech to increase. I think they're certainly going down the right path with that. It's also about how you present a role and communicate it. For example, we recently ran a very revealing experiment at Cypher we advertised the same marketing role with four different job titles to see what difference that would make. And it made a lot. The job title sales coordinator, for example, had no applications. Two other job titles generated 25% of applications between them. Marketing Guru, meanwhile, mopped up with 75% of applications received. The moral of the story is clear. If you want to attract talent, you've got to talk to people in the right language and make a role seem relevant and appealing to them. Biggest challenge, biggest opportunity. I think the biggest challenge the tech sector faces is simply keeping up with the pace. A phenomenal rate of growth and speed of development is needed to support the new ideas that are being generated. But this feeds into the opportunity. To meet these growth demands by broadening how we look at tech and realising that there is a much wider range of skills and people that can be considered tech proficient, that's what Cypher is all about. We're not so much looking to populate the world with little computer scientists as to raise technology proficiency among the young, because tech is becoming a base foundation for so many careers. And as the skills base for tech broadens, it helps address the gender gap. 52% of our students are female. We're going to need technology skills across the workforce. Computing proficiency is the new essential skill alongside literacy and numeracy. And if we can embrace and nurture that as a society, the future will be so much brighter. Article 3. The sustainability future is coming at us faster than we know. Tom Mills, founder and managing director... Two Oceans Strategy.
1: Key Insights. One, we rapidly begin to move from ESG badges to hard data that will make an organization's impact on people and the planet much clearer. Two, there are huge opportunities for tech as an enabler of measurement, analysis, and reporting, and what we call sustained tech. Three, but alongside this, Requirements and obligations will rise to tech firms too. CIOs and digital leaders are key enablers helping their organisations lower their energy footprints and become more sustainable.
0: Environmental, social and corporate governance has become a topic on everyone's lips. But at the same time, we're in an ambiguous space with many contested terms. We've had prominent figures like Elon Musk describing ESG as a scam that is being weaponized by phony social justice warriors. There has been a police raid on the asset manager DWS in Germany amid the whistleblowing allegations of greenwashing. Meanwhile, oil and gas valuations have rocketed by around 66% due to the current geopolitical and economic issues. So, is ESG just a matter of woke capitalism? there is no doubt that it fundamentally matters, but we are still in the volatile stages of defining the lexicon and the rules of the game. Nevertheless, things are moving fast and we're going to see some rapid paradigm shifts that CIOs and other executives will need to respond to. At the moment, we're very much in the territory of what I call badges. Policies, pledges, commitments, and ratings on various ESG ratings indexes. But the policies and pledges are as yet largely untested, whilst ratings indexes are blunt and not consistent with each other. A study from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology recently found a 56% divergence in the scores given by the top six. As more granular and rigorous data becomes available and gets reported, this will change. An organisation's real impact on issues that are material to the future of the planet and the people that live on it will become clearer. Carbon will be very important, but our focus will expand to understand climate change as a biosphere health issue. Water, air quality, biodiversity, waste, impacts on communities and people will also be prominent. This will be a movement away from ESG and risks managed through policies to talking more broadly about real impact and sustainability. In fact, I believe we could see the term ESG fading away over the next few years or so, just as the term CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, has now become almost unused. The terms of reference will move on. Tech Opportunity The emphasis on data will mean that technology has a key role. There is a huge opportunity for the tech sector, devising software and tools that enable businesses to capture, measure, analyse and report. Just as fintech is playing a key role in financial services, so what we could call sustained tech will be central to sustainability in coming years. Technology will also play a vital role in energy generation and efficiency, finding ways to make renewable energy generation more predictable and constant, for example, across a number of climates and geographies. It will increasingly be used to measure and audit information, such as the satellite technology and algorithms that are being used to audit carbon credits from forests and mangrove swamps. Rising Requirements At the same time, however, there are rising requirements and standards that tech firms and businesses across sectors will have to meet. For example, For access to capital, around 30 stock exchanges globally already mandate ESG reporting in order to be listed with them. Carbon taxes are slowly spreading, whilst the EU is planning a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which would see a carbon cost levied on goods and services coming into the region. Governments are beginning to shift from voluntary to mandatory disclosures for a growing number of organisations, and companies are increasingly rating their suppliers and asking them for sustainability and carbon related information. They need to do this for their own Scope 2 and 3 emissions. So if you're a tech firm doing business with a large corporate, you may find yourself off the list before long if you don't have a strong ESG profile. A key role for tech leaders. What of the CIO's role in all of this? The first thing to say is that it can't just be left to the ESG team. The CIO and other digital leaders have an instrumental role to play in ensuring that their organisation is able to produce the data that's required. The right data, in the right format, at the right time. They need to enable the business to embrace connectivity tools and shared platforms that reduce the speed for physical travel and so push the organisation's carbon footprint in the right direction. They can also add real value by working with the business to implement early warning systems, utilising artificial intelligence to scan new sources, social media and publicly available information that pick up on signals around emerging trends, best practice and regulatory requirements. Another key area is the organization's own energy usage. Servers are a big part of this. Running a data center can be a significant proportion of an organization's electricity usage. So, it should be the CIO that fronts up a review of where the organization's servers are, what grids they're on, and what type of electricity they use. If they are not running on renewable energy, then the CIO should be using their voice to lobby their data center provider to make the transition. The more demand there is from the market for this, the more that provision will increase. The Nash Squared Digital Leadership Report found that whilst 58% of CIOs were using tech to reduce the need to travel, only 22% were looking at improving the carbon footprint of their technology itself. So this is an area where more action is needed as a priority. Educate and learn. As I said at the outset, this is still an emerging area. It's also complex and fast-moving. Business leaders needs to educate themselves to learn about it. As a CIO or other digital leader, ask yourself, what does sustainability really mean for our business and what's my role in helping to support, understand and improve it? There's no time to waste. The future is coming at us faster than we know, Leaders in technology must make it a priority to start looking through the sustainability lens and putting the tools and systems in place that the business needs to embrace it. Biggest challenge, biggest opportunity. Big tech business models have primarily been based on providing services that are free to consumers with other businesses paying to advertise to them, selling people's attention so that organizations can sell to them. This leads to people buying or being encouraged to buy things they don't want. This needs to change. It's not an appropriate model anymore. So the challenge for tech is to create a new business model where people are willing to pay for the services they want. The biggest opportunity, in my view, will be the new revenue streams arising out of the voluntary carbon market. There will be a massive opportunity for tech as the facilitator or provider of tools that are being used. It may sound niche, but it's a market where I think we will see phenomenal growth. Article 4 We have set the bar too low in favour of usability over cybersecurity. Robert Bigman, President, 2B Secure Inc. Formerly Chief Information Security Officer at the CIA.
1: Key Insights 1. Organisations are favouring the user experience over security, and this is leading to significant risk. The CISO needs to exert more control. 2. There are a number of clear policies and processes businesses should follow relating to emails, attachments and application download protocols to bolster security. 3. The hackers are in danger of winning the war. Often, they're getting into businesses without even realizing it. Better logging and monitoring is needed, and more stringent protocols to keep them out in the first place.
0: The cybersecurity threat is present and growing. If you work in cybersecurity, it's your job to work with IT to build the necessary moats around systems to protect the enterprise. But I have real concerns that the cybersecurity criminals are winning the battle there is a lot of focus on training users to enable them to spot fishes. This is time well spent. After all, the Nash Square Digital Leadership Report found that there has been an 83% rise in phishing attacks. But you've got to realise that user training on its own is never going to solve the problem. There is always someone in the business whose job it is to take attachments from people they don't know, after all. As a cybersecurity consultant, I've run many simulated phishing attacks, and I've been able to get in almost every time. It's child's play in many cases for a sophisticated attacker. Systems are more important than people. The key lies not in relying on your people, but on your systems. There are some clear and simple rules that I always recommend organisations to follow. Firstly, you need a robust collection of email security validation standards. These come pretty much turned on by default in systems such as Microsoft 365 and Gmail, so don't turn them off. They establish protocols such as determining whether an email has come from a known user, for example. Secondly, you need strong security around the user's ability to execute attachments. Users should never be able to execute an attachment by clicking on it. This should open it in a viewer instead but this is something that few organisations follow. You also need good Generation 3 software with Endpoint Detection Response, EDR, or Extended Detection and Response, XDR, capability on your desktop that minimises the risk of users actually executing malware through an attachment. It goes without saying that businesses also need top-tier anti-malware and antivirus software on their desktop environments. Unfortunately, many organisations are still using malware protection products that essentially date from the 1990s. Hackers are continually working on and testing their attack tools and confined loopholes in old defence systems. You really have to ensure that you are using updated and modernised antivirus software. Then there is application control. You can't let users download any application they want from the internet into your corporate environment. So don't ever give general users administrative privileges. It's one of the first things hackers will look for. Again, this is something that few organisations follow rigorously enough. Alongside this, you'll need application controls in place. This means having software running on your systems that only allows certain executable software to run but i've seen this not being sufficiently followed even in the biggest corporate organizations they may have elaborate and sophisticated cybersecurity programs in place but still have much too a lax policy around users downloading applications correcting the usability security balance it all comes down to the balance between user experience and cybersecurity i fear that the bar has fallen too low the pendulum has swung too far towards the user CISOs need to exert their influence to get the balance redressed. Of course, every business wants to support a good user environment and not slow down work and productivity by having too many checks and barriers. But the measures I've outlined above won't have a great impact on most users. They will only have a significant effect on people who are downloading applications and software from the internet and outside sources very frequently. For them, practical solutions can be agreed. The measures just make good security sense. It's all part of taking a threat-based approach. See the threats and act on them. I always ask my clients, have you done all the things possible to minimise your risk from hacking? The answer has to be yes. More incursions than we know. Otherwise, organisations are likely to fall foul of two main threats. The first, and biggest, comes from external attackers. Ransomware attackers have become a big problem. I see a couple of cases every month among my clients, but attackers are also trying to get in so they can exfiltrate data and information to sell it on the dark web. This is where we're really losing the war, because often the cyber criminals are getting in and organisations aren't even aware. There are far more attacks going on now than we know. Criminals are gaining access, using the user's privileges to move around inside systems, then exfiltrating data out on a path that the company already uses, so they don't see it. They don't have good logging to spot or track misuse. Where they do have good logging, they may not actually be looking at it. I've known instances here in the US, first a business has known of it, is when the FBI have come to them and said, Is this data yours? It's for sale on the dark web. The second threat is your own people. Not so much malicious inside activity, which in my experience is actually relatively rare, but much more frequently human error that leads to people mistakenly sending sensitive or confidential data outside the organisation. That's why controls over data protection and distribution are so important. I worked for 30 years at the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, and was honoured to become the CISO. It was a big responsibility, but in many ways, I was onto a good thing. I had a very closed environment to manage, users who were generally willing and accepting of the need for security, and a large, though not unlimited, budget. Commercial CISOs have it tougher. They have a more open environment, less willing and accepting users, and tight budgets to work within. But they simply have to rise to the challenge. Cybersecurity is an ongoing battle. You can never relax your defences. The CISO has to keep working with the organisation to ensure the bar stays as high as it can be. Biggest challenge, biggest opportunity. I'm staying with the cyber theme because that is how I view the world after 38 years in security. The biggest challenge facing the tech sector is that if we don't change the trajectory of the cyber threat, technology will hit a wall because people will simply no longer trust it. I support the introduction of legislation to hold manufacturers of computer software and hardware more accountable and responsible for security. They have to do more to keep security high and the attackers out. I've briefed US Congress on this, but I'm not sure legislation will ever happen. There is a positive I can point to, though. The cloud. If they do it right, organisations that move their systems to the cloud have the opportunity to dramatically increase their security. It can be an opportunity to take a greenfield approach and start again. To their credit, I've seen a number of organizations that have done a great job moving to the cloud and making themselves significantly more secure. Article 5 We need to change the narrative to drive up inclusivity in tech. Debbie van der Vaier, Chief Executive Officer, Flow Pilots.
1: Key insights. 1. Gender bias and stereotyping is built into society right from the outset, and children experience it from very early years. It's more like inculcation than education. 2. We need to break these biases so that girls are more likely to pursue an interest in STEM subjects, science, engineering, technology and maths. We need to bring the concept of STEM in earlier, and broaden our definitions of what STEM is, so that it is more inclusive of a wide range of skills. 3. Only then will we see real changes of the number of women coming into tech, and staying. There are still too many barriers and prejudices, holding them back and making them leave.
0: It was no surprise to me at all when Nash Squared's digital leadership report found that only 12% of tech leaders are female, and that women only make up around a quarter of the tech workforce. It reflects what I am seeing myself, unfortunately. Women are highly underrepresented in tech. I am CEO of a digital solutions business in Belgium called Flowpilots. I would love to hire more women, but there's a real shortage of young women coming through with coding or programming skills. You can't hire what isn't there. Bias in the Classroom. The problem starts right at the beginning, in how society moulds the narrative. There is bias and gender stereotyping mixed in right from the start. We teach children from their early years what the prototype of a doctor or an engineer is through the way we talk about subjects and the images we present. School books still have very traditional presentations of gender roles. I know because I've researched this myself. It is also something that the World Trade Organisation has complained about. Fact is, by the age of six, when children begin to become properly aware of their gender, girls already think that boys are better at technical and mathematical concepts. We need to completely change the approach. Computational thinking, in the form of making or building simple things, should start from around the age of two and a half when girls and boys start kindergarten. All gender-biased toys should be banned from kindergartens because there are plenty of these at home after all. The early years should be focused on creativity, making things, painting things, constructing things, just letting children experiment and explore. Then, from around the age of six, simple coding techniques could be introduced at the same time as children of both genders are introduced to a wide range of careers and activities. Factory floors, healthcare settings, office roles, technical and digital jobs to give them the broadest possible and unbiased view of the possibilities in front of them. But sadly, our present system is what I call inculcation, not education. Attitudes and stereotypes are inculcated into our young people. This bias is then progressively emphasised as children grow up in the way everything is framed. We need to change this And I'm practising what I preach. I'm sending my own two young children to a special school in Belgium for just this reason. I don't want them to have their outlook narrowed or hampered by traditional, stereotypical approaches. STEM. Too late and too narrow. Another problem is that in Belgium and in many other countries, the whole notion of STEM comes in much too late. Is not introduced in Belgium until around the age of 14. By then, the expectation has already been set that STEM is something for boys. Girls are looked upon as weird or odd if they're interested and face exclusion from their peer groups if they become serious about it. A related issue here is that the whole concept of what STEM is needs to be revisited. At the moment, it's really viewed through a male lens, a male's narrative. There are many technical skills that women are really strong in that aren't viewed as STEM. For example, take the NASA moon landings. Did you know that a team of 30 women worked to design the technical specifications for the spacesuits and sew them with 21 layers of fabric to ensure they were resistant to radioactivity whilst also allowing sufficient movement for the astronauts? The women worked closely with engineers so that the necessary tubing and ventilation could be integrated into the design. And yet this highly complex technical achievement is hardly ever mentioned in the history of NASA. It's something that's literally been going on since the Stone Ages. Technical advancements then are talked about in terms of a spear and arrow tips that men invented. But what about the women who developed pottery skills so that food could be cooked and also stored and preserved? It's great that diversity and inclusion is much more on the agenda now, and I hope that we will see increasing levels of change but until we transform the underlying narrative right from the start, I'm not so hopeful about how far-reaching that change will be. Tactics for change There are things that help. I regularly speak at schools and colleges to inspire young girls. I also run a network for women that meets every month. The aim is to show young women coming into tech that there are role models who can inspire them, other women who have made it to the top, This helps diminish the fallout, because another vicious circle is that those women who do come into tech often get to the age of 30 and 35 and are disappointed by the lack of women around them and drift out of the profession towards something else. This is also the age where many women begin to start a family, and often they don't come back. I encourage women in the workforce to expand and develop their skills. There aren't many women coming through with programming skills, but there are more in support roles. So I push them to take courses, develop their professional knowledge and talk the talk. Women have brilliant skills and capabilities that really suit them to careers in tech. Creativity, communication, collaboration. They tend to really think about the needs of users and what key achievements are in a new piece of software or app. Men might say, let's build this because we can. Women are more likely to say, if we build this, what problem will it solve? It's a continual battle, though. A partner at a big four accountancy firm recently told me that women are better at looking after children because we are biologically predefined to do it. That may or may not be the case, but that doesn't mean women can't do a whole range of other things as well, and it's something I'm never going to stop fighting for. Biggest challenge, biggest opportunity. My biggest challenge and opportunity for the technology sector are both also, in a sense, related to gender and bias. The biggest challenge we face is ethics in the development and use of AI. It worries me how little regulation there is and how little awareness there is of the dangers of building bias into tech. Look at how dictators like Putin use technology to program the way people think and what they believe. But at the same time, If we can get this right, there is a huge opportunity. Inclusive tech could help make healthcare more proactive, accessible and affordable. It could help address aspects of climate change. It could make lives in developing countries much better, for example, by predicting where and when rain will fall in regions struck by drought. It is all about aligning tech with common, agreed norms and values, rather than making it all about money or power. There are too many megalomaniac projects in the tech landscape today that have nothing to do with serving the best interests of society. Let's change that. If you've enjoyed today's reading of The State of Digital, why don't you head over to our dedicated website, nashsquared.com forward slash DLR 2022. There you can get loads more content as well as downloadable copies of both The State of Digital and the Digital Leadership Report on which it was based as well as a recording of our launch event that we held on the 30th of June and is a panel that dives into this in far more detail, dissecting the articles that you've just listened to. So loads of content there for you to engage with. And whilst we've got you, a little plead from me, why don't you take part in next year's Digital Leadership Report? We're now open, collecting surveys to make sure that next year's report is better than ever and hopefully the next iteration of the state of digital has even more to talk about. So we'd love you to take some time to add your voice to that. As I said head over to nashsquared.com forward slash DLR dash 2022.